welcome back, everybody. This is episode five of our weight management podcast. Uh, thank you so much for uh, tuning in and listening to all of these. Uh, today's going to be a little bit different uh, in that all of the questions that I'm going to have for our expert, Dr. Jacqueline Jacques, uh, all the questions came from you, came from our listeners. So, um, uh, hopefully you will uh, enjoy these since they were all crowdsourced. Uh, I'm Dr. Alan Miller, and Dr. Jacques is with us today again. Jacqueline, let's just get started here. I've got some sort of random okay. questions and some that, that look like a lot of fun. Let's... It feels like just fun surprise to me, so I'm excited oh, to yeah, what we've got. <laughs> just gonna, this is going to be just total think on your feet time. Like it. Okay. Uh, first one here. Um the question is how to fend off sugar cravings and dial in your nutrition when you have a chaotic lifestyle and an inconsistent schedule. That's an easy one, huh? Yeah, it's, a, well, it's a great, it's a great question actually, because, um, you know, there's, there's a lot to the issue of cravings. And I think, you know, it's, it's something that people can really struggle with uh, when they're, when they're working at making changes to their diet. So, there's a couple of interesting answers to this. Um, the first is just sort of understanding why you have cravings. Um, I really think if people don't automatically know, like, oh, okay, you know, I I crave sugar at 3 p.m. because um, it's when I get tired, when I'm sitting at my desk, you know, and I keep a stash of chocolate bars in my desk drawer and I tend to reach for one. You know, some people know very specifically why they crave them, but a lot of people really don't have a very good conscious understanding of their own cravings. So one of the things I really recommend that people do is just even if it's just for a few days is keep a little log and write this stuff down, you know, write down, you know, uh, when you had a craving, um, you know, what you were doing at the time, what you were feeling uh, and, you know, what you were craving um, specifically in terms of um, a food. Um, so, you know, it might be, uh, that you find that you're bored. So you're craving things because, you know, you're, you know, the mind isn't active with other things. You might find that it's because you're tired. You might find that uh, all your cravings are always, you know, at the same time of day. So you can learn some really in interesting information if you just, you know, jot some of these things down. Um, women will often find that their cravings vary with their menstrual cycle. So, you know, um, you might find that you're craving you know, sugar, particularly mid-morning on the nights that you don't sleep well. So you might say, oh, I, I found that I was really craving, you know, those donuts because I was really tired. So that teaches us a lot. So why do we crave uh, sugar? Some can be um, really if we're low energy. So if you're not sleeping well, um, that disrupts uh, our hormonal cycles. So people may get dysfunctions in the hormone cortisol, which is one of the hormones very much responsible for those sugar cravings if it's out of balance. So that can be from too much stress. Um, it can be from poor sleep. Um, there's some other causes as well. Uh, that's one that we can actually test for. So if it's one that people think is um, a real issue for them, it's a pretty simple test. It's actually one that, that people can do at home um, is to look and see what their cortisol rhythm is throughout the day and if it's, that's connected to their cravings. Um, if you find that your craving seems to be connected to a particular activity, uh, probably one of the easiest things people can do is just kind of change it up. So if you note that it, you know, a certain time every day, um, maybe out of habit or for other reasons that, you know, you start craving 
you know, say that 3 p.m. chocolate bar or, you know, it's uh, after, you know, work and you've just come home and, you know, you find yourself to kind of walk into the pantry and looking for potato chips or something. Um, figuring out how to change your routine is often something that really helps people. So when it gets to be that time of day, maybe you, you know, go outside and take a walk or you, you know, read the newspaper or you, you know, do something in of what your normal activity would be so that you're not kind of reaching habit. So those are a couple ways that people can look at that issue of craving. Um, there's actually a new study. Uh, I just reviewed this today, in fact, so it's interesting that we're asking this question that showed that um, for particularly for cravings for sweets, that people may be able to um, replace the satisfying act of eating that that thing uh, by smelling it. So, um, and that might sound counterintuitive, but it actually seems to be time-related. So um, the researchers in this study checked this out in a few different environments, both controlled and uncontrolled. Uh, so they, they ran a test, in a, an experiment in a grocery store, they ran an experiment in a school cafeteria, and then they ran an experiment in a lab. Um, but the upshot was that if people smelled something for a very brief period of time, like 30 seconds or less, um, and the, the main example they used was cookies, right? So you had a quick smell of cookies baking, and you were then offered the choice between eating cookies or eating a piece of fruit that people who had had the experience of the smell of cookies for like 30 seconds would always want the cookies. But if they had a longer exposure to the smell, two minutes was the time that they found to be effective, um, that that actually for most people stopped their craving for um, the sweet food or the food that they were craving and led the majority of people in that same experiment to reach for the fruit instead of for the cookies. So <laughs> it's a really, I know, and it sounds really fascinating and it's, it may seem a little counterintuitive until you stop and you think about how closely related our sense of smell and our sense of taste are. And what they have started to understand is that in terms of our reward pathways, those sensations are also very much mixed. And so there seems to be a point after enough exposure to a particular smell that that uh, smell alone satisfies those reward pathways for a craving. So there's another one that people can try is if you're finding that, you know, um, you're really having that craving for, you know, whatever it is, cookies or cinnamon rolls or ice cream, that smelling that particular food for around a two-minute period may actually cause the craving to go away. So walk into Krispy Kreme, stand there, and wait at least two minutes before you <laughs> order, and then turn around and walk out, right? I just think it's it's extremely interesting to <laughs> it me, really it, but it, it does make sense when you think about the way that um, we have such a close connection between taste and uh, and smell. That so. really is fascinating. Okay. Oh, this this is a really good question. If no one diet works for everyone, because we've talked about that, about there not being a one size fits all. So how does one find the one? that's best suited for them? So that's a great question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start by backing up and saying, well, no one diet works for everyone. There are fundamental principles that work for most people. So, um, especially when we're talking about weight. So I, we can't talk about, you know, 
every individual variation of every allergy that people might have or, um, you know, digestive sensitivities to food. We can't, you know, take all of that into account all the time. But fundamentally, when it comes to uh, weight control, um, we do know that by and large, having um, diets that are modest in calories, um, that have ample amounts of lean protein and have a rich source of uh, colorful fruits and vegetables do tend to help people in um, maintaining a healthy weight um, more easily than um, other kinds of diets do. So I think there is, you know, a little bit of generalization we can make. Um, when it comes down to individual variation, then, you know, for each of us on our own, um, that often can take some exploration. Some things people have already come by just in their life. They've known their entire life that, you know, eating strawberries causes them to break out in a rash or um, eating corn, you know, um, upsets their digestive system. So there's things that people have kind of learned, you know, just because they've eaten enough in their lifetime and they've trial and error has taught them some lessons. Um, for people who haven't been able to you know, come by that information through trial, there's really a couple of ways that people can drill into having a better understanding of how their body interacts with food. Um, so the traditional way before we had a lot of sophisticated testing was for people to keep diet diaries, right, was to start with an elimination diet. Um, and uh, I think, Alan, correct me if I'm wrong, we actually have the instructions basically for an elimination diet on our website um, with the MediClear program. Is that right? Do we have that in the patient guide? Correct. That's part of the MediClear patient guide. Yeah. So um, that may be too much for the, for us to go through in, in the scope of uh, answering these questions today. But um, an elimination diet is one that um, more or less takes a huge amount of foods out of the diet. And then over a period of days and weeks, you add foods back into your diet and record your responses to those foods and food groups as you add them back. That was the old tried and true method for um, getting personal about what foods agree with you and what foods don't agree with you. Nowadays, um, if you want to go through the process, there's a lot more sophisticated testing that can be done. So um, a whole range of food allergy testing is available for people. Um, many people now are starting to uh, test their microbiomes and gain a better understanding of how their gut is maybe directly interacting with food or may interact with food uh, by looking at uh, the health um, and balance of the microbes in their digestive system. So we can, you know, gain other kinds of information through testing. But um, the basic way is really just by examining what we eat and how we respond to what we eat. Even with the testing, um, it's not a perfect science. So, you know, again, usually even when we do any kind of food allergy testing for people, we still recommend um, that they keep track of their responses to those foods so that they can get um you know, a direct, uh, you know, understanding of how any of those individual foods might be acting in their bodies. So similar to what you said for the last question, uh, which is gain some knowledge, uh, do some diet journaling uh, yourself and, uh, you know, see what foods tend to work for you and which ones don't. Um, nowadays, there's great apps and things that um, make it really easy for you to record what you're eating and your responses to your food. So um, some really 
you know, nice tools available for people um, that have made this a much less cumbersome process than it was even 10 years ago. At the end of the day, it really does help people start to see those patterns and connections between what they are individually eating and how they feel. It's, I don't think there's really, even with all the testing we have, I'm not sure there's a better tool than that. Agreed. Um, and, and I agree because when you eliminate certain foods from your diet and then you start bringing them back in one by one, you own those results. And, and there's, there's a difference in doing that versus seeing something on paper and going, oh, it looks like I'm allergic to or this or that. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't really even thought about the, the psychological aspect like that, Alan, but I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, it, I think, does um, help people get that real understanding of, oh, wow, okay, look, I ate this thing. And two hours later, I had this experience of how I felt. And when I repeated it, I did it again. Yeah. Right. So um, that's that the fun part as a, <laughs> as, as a diet scientist, which is what you become. That's the fun part is repeating it. Because if it happens once you go, I don't know, you do it again. And you're like, okay, yeah, that's definite. So next question for you uh, is about blood sugar and insulin. Uh, this this uh, person wants to know how to keep blood sugar and insulin stable throughout the day, clear to bedtime. Clear to bedtime. So um, I'm going to assume um, that if someone's asking that question, um, they may be having an experience of feeling like their blood sugar is up and down. Um, they may even know. So we do have people who monitor those things at home, um, maybe with a home glucose meter. Um, they might be checking those. Uh, you know, typically um, the number one key to keeping blood sugar stable throughout the day is having regularly timed eating events that include foods that help support sustaining a, a stable blood sugar throughout the day. Um, when we really look at what does that, um, primarily making sure that you get enough lean protein and an adequate amount of healthy fats with every eating event is probably the most important thing that you can do for keeping blood sugar stable throughout the day. So, um, you know, that's what I would really advise for most people is an effective strategy. Um, also tends to be a, a good healthy supportive strategy for, um, for weight maintenance and, and weight loss. So for many people, those things will go hand in hand. One of our listeners wants to know the best way to stop your body from being insulin resistant. And, and we're kind of talking about that already here, but this is somebody who wants to lose some belly fat and they also want to uh, deal with that, uh, that insulin resistance. Yeah. So I think that the first part of the question that isn't even asked here is, you know, why does insulin resistance happen? Right. Um, because the, when we understand why it happens, we can start to understand how to unwind it a little bit. For the most part, insulin resistance happens by putting too much stress on our insulin system, which uh, sort of pushes it beyond what it would um, normally be taxed with doing. So normally, um, you eat something, um, uh, you know, you get some calories from food, and in response to that, your body uh, releases insulin in response to, um, you know, you eating something. And because of that release of insulin, 
will trigger us using uh, the calories we've consumed as energy, right? So we always want to have enough of an ability to get some release of insulin so we can tell the body the correct things to do with those calories so that we have readily available energy for ourselves, right? The other part that, that will happen if there are calories in excess of what you need at that time is insulin will also trigger storage. So it will stimulate um, your body putting some, away, some of those calories away for later use when you may not have readily available energy. So if we constantly are consuming energy, um, particularly readily available energy from sugars in excess of what we need, then we're constantly triggering that pathway of telling the body to keep putting them into storage, keep putting them into storage. And that overstimulation of that pathway um, can start to lead to resistance, wherein um, the system just doesn't respond um, as well or as readily. It takes more insulin um, to do its normal job. Cells become more resistant. We end up kind of cascading in the wrong direction where the body becomes easier and easier to store our energy and harder and harder to burn our energy. And it takes more of that insulin um, to continue to keep that cycle going. Um, and this is sort of a negative place that people often get to with weight gain. Genetics definitely contribute to it. So there are people who are definitely more genetically biased towards the development of insulin resistance. And we know that uh, it does correlate with excess weight, in particular with, with excess abdominal fat. So when we look at how to undo that process, um, the most powerful tool is weight loss itself. And there probably is no power, more powerful tool for most people than even small amounts of weight loss. Honestly, small amounts in the range of five to 10% have been shown to substantially improve and in many cases, um, outright reverse insulin resistance. So if we were looking at the one most powerful prescription for insulin resistance, it would probably be weight loss itself. Exercise also, um, helps to uh, you know, regulate insulin sensitivity and regular exercise has been shown to be another very powerful tool in um, both preventing and reversing insulin resistance. And then, um, you know, diet. So a lot, a lot of the things that we have really talked about alone, even independently of diets that promote weight loss, um, diets that reduce the amounts of carbohydrates and simple sugars tend to be greatly beneficial in helping to correct um, that insulin regulatory response. So that can be another big part of the puzzle. Um, we do have nutrients that help. So we have nutrients like chromium um, that are part of our regulatory process for uh, how the body uh, responds to insulin and sugar that we can you know, help support people with for uh, better insulin sensitivity. Some of our B vitamins like thiamine play a role. So um, I think in at least one of our podcasts, we talked about just the importance of having good, solid, adequate nutrition as part of a, a weight loss or a weight management program. And one of the reasons why is to make sure that we have all of those correct nutrients on board to regulate metabolism and metabolic function. And really, a lot of the nutrients that we talked about that are involved in our weight loss program are about uh, insulin resistance and, and correcting that or preventing it, uh, including fiber, um, including magnesium and, and fish oil as well. 
Yeah, and making sure that those are included in the proper amounts, yeah. right? So, um, you know, again, part of the thing that when we talked about the, the metabolic shake in particular is that it is pre-formulated with all of those nutrients um, plus some added beneficial botanicals, but really in particular when we talk about the nutrients, um, supplying those nutrients in forms and amounts that are very much targeted towards the regulation of that system. Well, here, here's another question that's uh, sort of a little bit of a takeoff on what we were just talking about. Um, this is somebody who is 65, female, never had a weight problem, but the last few years, her weight seems to be around her middle. She says she eats well, she walks. Why is it so hard to lose that abdominal weight? Yeah, so for women in particular, as we, as we get older, for all humans as we get older, um, there is just a little increasing tendency as we age towards having a little bit more insulin resistance. So um, from that last question, we talked about, you know, that system can be um, overstimulated if we uh, consume way too many calories or consume too too many calories from sugar or simple sugars. Um, but like kind of like, you know, you wear you wear on your joints over time, uh, kind of slow um, and wear down a little bit with age. Um, we can also sort of develop, you know, even small amounts of insulin resistance as we get older, just because we've used the system for many more years and decades. Right. So things just may not um, be as responsive as they were when we were younger. So that can certainly be a contributing factor to um, to that kind of weight gain. The reason they can often see um, a little bit more of a struggle with holding on to fat as they get older is that estrogen levels have continued to decline um, as they've gotten older. So uh, estrogen, our primary female hormone, um, made in the ovaries, but is also made in fat cells. So when a woman's um, natural levels of estrogen fall with age, women often find that their bodies will hold on to uh, extra fat, particularly that excess abdominal fat that can be very um, uh, productive for helping to augment some of those losses in estrogen, um, but may not be very productive for other areas of health. It's not really a solution to the problem in telling people that, but it can, uh, it is something we can test for. So it can be something that we can um, look at uh, ways to address that therapeutically if we know that that's part of the issue. I've got two questions here that uh, are sort of the uh, opposite of each other. Uh, one person says that they want to increase muscle mass while not increasing body fat. And the other person says, I want to lose body fat without losing muscle mass. So how do we do that? How do we lose, uh, how do we get more lean, lose that body fat and not lose muscle at the same time? So um, it's an important question because uh, not only do, do our bodies tend to look a little bit better if we can keep our muscle and lose our fat, but it's really good for health. So muscle is a more metabolically active tissue. Um, it's you know, important uh, for maintaining multiple areas of health, not just our physical strength, but um, actually just contributes to our overall health to have a healthier level of muscle. And conversely, we know that when people um, have uh, an an unfavorable ratio of muscle mass or lean mass in general to fat mass, um, that tends to be a really poor indicator of metabolic health. 
um, that can progress to a condition that we actually call sarcopenia, where there's a, a very unhealthy imbalance between that lean mass, particularly muscle mass and fat mass. So it's a risk with weight loss. And in fact, it's a particular risk with very large amounts of weight loss um, that, um, you know, people are at risk of losing muscle if they're not careful at looking at how they maintain that. And some of it is, I don't want to ever say anything's inevitable. When, when people lose large amounts of weight, you're always going to lose probably a little bit of muscle along with fat. But the place that people should be striving for is maintaining um, as much of their lean mass as they can while they're losing fat. So the two most powerful tools for doing that, um, one is diet <laughs> and one is exercise. And I always feel like we're, we're saying some of the same things over and over again, but some again, very specific. With, again, again, with the diet, diet and exercise. But, um, very specifically this time with diet, making sure that people are um, replacing um, an adequate amount of protein and amino acids every single day while they're actively losing weight. So we use amino acids uh, not just for muscle in our bodies, but for a ton of other processes. We make neurotransmitters out of them for our brain. Um, we use them for um, repair functions. So, you know, if you you know, cut yourself or, you know, anything else, you structurally need amino acids to be able to rebuild. So, um, you know, we use them just for a huge variety of processes, um, uh, some extremely essential in our bodies each and every day. So if you are decreasing the amount of food that you take in because you're trying to lose weight and not enough of your calories are coming from protein, your body will suddenly say, oh, okay, well, I need amino acids, so um, that's great. Um, I'm not getting enough coming in from diet, so I'm just going to take it from muscle. <laughs> so, because, you know, they can, right? And if you need the amino acids, say, to keep your brain going, which we do because we need them for those neurotransmitters, um, your body's going to take it from your muscles. And so if we deprive our bodies of adequate protein over a long enough period of time, it can take a lot of muscle. So that's not um, a favorable state to be in. Um, so we really need to make sure that people get back at least their daily requirements, um, which for adults, I, I'm going to forget my exact RDAs, but it's, it's, I think, 46 grams of protein a day for women and a bit more for men. I want to say something like 53 or 55 or something for men. But, you know, figure on average for an adult, either male or female, you're looking at needing about 50 grams of protein a day um, to maintain um, your baseline level of lean body mass. Okay. If you're actually trying to build, because I know that there's people who want to be doing both of those things simultaneously. So you get those people who are saying, well, I want to be losing fat and I also at the same time want to make more muscle. <laughs> then for most people, that means you have to be somewhat above that baseline maintenance level for protein. Um, and you have to be doing something else. So you probably have to be doing some kind of exercise that will stimulate muscle growth, um, some weightlifting or other kinds of um you know, a resistance training to be able to actually build muscle up. And we didn't talk about that very much in, in the previous podcast episodes. Uh, the fact that that the resistance training is a uh, an integral part of 
diet and exercise um, and uh, shaking it up a little bit, confusing your muscle, doing one thing one day, one, one thing the next is helpful. But doing that resistance training is one of those things that really gets um, that uh, muscle hypertrophy and getting those muscles to be a little larger and more metabolically active. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And so I think, you know, again, if it, for this question too, I think it just depends on a little bit what people's goals are, but um, if the goal is, is to maintain, um, then, you know, certainly at a minimum, making sure that you're getting uh, the amount of protein that it would take to not be losing protein is number one. And then resistance training, I would put on my list as number two um, for making sure that we both maintain the health of all that lean mass, but also if someone really wants to be building, um, they need the combination of the two. Interesting question here from one of our listeners about how do you determine what your target weight might be? And I know that really depends on your genetics and and uh, so many other things. But I mean, my answer to that would be look in the mirror and don't start don't be looking at numbers. But what's what's your take on that? You know, there's some scientific ways that we can do it. The the major way medicine does this is through BMI or body mass index, um, which is a calculated ratio between uh, height and weight. So, you know, if you really want to get scientific about it, there are BMI calculators now. It used to be, you know, you'd have to sit and do the math, <laughs> but you don't have to anymore. You could enter the term BMI calculator on your computer and uh, in 30 seconds, you can get a computer to calculate for you what puts you at um, a target BMI um, for your age and your gender and, and everything else. So that's one way to look at it if you really want the scientific, you know, marker. Um, but, you know, when we start talking about, you know, what weight gets healthy for any one individual, there are other things that we can take into account. So um, a lot of people know a weight that they're comfortable at. You know, they can think, okay, well, you know, before I had my first baby, I weighed 142 pounds and I always felt really good about myself at that body weight. And I know I was healthy and, you know, that's what I want to target. If someone has a very large amount of weight to lose and they're struggling with other health issues, maybe they've got prediabetes, they've got high blood pressure, and you know they look at their BMI-related weight and it might be, oh, wow, that's a 75-pound weight loss for me to get there. Um, and maybe that seems overwhelming. Um, another way to look at it is what amount of weight loss is correlated with significant health benefits? So I think I said this number earlier today with it with a question that um, uh, you asked in the beginning of this conversation, Alan, but um, I'll mention it again because I think this is where it really applies, is that especially when we're looking at health-related conditions um, in individuals who may be um, substantially overweight or even in the range of overweight that we call obese, a 5 to 10% loss of body weight is significantly correlated with really profound health benefits. Um, it's correlated with uh, healthier blood sugars. It's correlated with healthier metabolic function. It's correlated with uh, improvements in liver health. It's correlated in improvements with um, uh, with insulin sensitivity. Um, just a whole range of things that we see improvement just at that that. Uh, level of weight loss, which can sound very small to people, right? We're talking about if someone weighs 200 pounds, 
um, you know, five to 10% weight loss is what, 10 to 20 pounds, right? So it's not an overwhelming amount of weight for people to target. So, you know, if someone's really looking at health benefits as their goal, um, they may say, okay, well, my target weight, I want that to be based on where I'm going to, you know, derive those health benefits that are important to me, which is, it's a very different goal from saying my goal is to be at a normal BMI or my goal is to weigh what I weighed when I was, you know, 32. Part of it is what is your specific goal related to your health? A way better answer than my um, let's look in the mirror, but that's that's a that's that's a guy's answer. Well, I don't want to discount that. Our psychological health is part of our health, right? And for, you know, not a small number of people, there is a way that they want to look when they see themselves, right? So I wouldn't discount that, but I think it's important to think about all those other things when we're setting a target, right? And sure, health, sure. health ideally should be fairly high on that list. I've got just a couple more things here. Um, we're kind of bumping up against our time. So um, uh, what is a good breakfast? when trying to lose weight? What is a good breakfast? Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say, I think we have good suggestions in the, in the metabolic guide that we, uh, we published for people. Um, a good breakfast can be comprised of any number of things. So if you're a really busy person, you're on the go, breakfast might be your, ma- you know, your meal where you do your shake. You can make a, a good variety of combinations of lean proteins and um, healthy, either, you know, colorful fruits and vegetables that can support a breakfast. So uh, we do in my household um, a fair number of eggs. So that's one that we do. Um, we'll do our eggs um, steamed or um, or boiled or sometimes um, uh, lightly fried. Uh, we'll do them with vegetables. So my my son, who is still at home with me, particularly loves um, to have eggs with kind of a vegetable hash in the morning. That's one of his personal favorites. Um, Overnight oats is one that we've been enjoying here in my house for breakfast a lot. And we actually add, um, uh, we add the um, uh, vegan protein right into that. So we put Vegalite right into our overnight oats and use that kind of as the milk. So it mixes in and sort of makes a, a protein base for making the, the overnight oats. So you get the, the good uh, fiber um, and beta-glucan and things from the oats and we usually will add some things like toasted almonds and other things into that to make that good and delicious for breakfast. I don't know, Alan, what are your favorite breakfasts at home? Those are our big ones. We go, we go to eggs and overnight oats in my house or shakes on the way out the door. That's actually, <laughs> those are, those are my three go-tos. Um, okay. and, then, and then on the weekend, cheating a little bit and doing some bacon and eggs and some hash browns. Let me ask you one more question here from yeah. one of our listeners. The question is, how do you stay motivated? past, say, the three-month mark? I think that's a real good question. Oh, it is a really good question. I am probably not the world's best motivation expert, but um, I will, I think, maybe maybe you'll have something that you can add to this too, Alan. Um, but I think that, you know, the one thing that um, I have given people as advice over the years is set small incremental goals and reward yourself when you achieve them. Um, I think that, you know, where people 
lose their motivation quickly and where they tend to get really frustrated is, you know, it's January 1st and you set your New Year's resolution and my New Year's resolution is I'm going to lose, you know, 30 pounds before Valentine's Day so I fit into, you know, the great dress that I want to wear out to dinner um, for my Valentine's dinner date. Mm-hmm. And, you know, two weeks into the new year, um, you've only lost, you know, three pounds and you've, you know, already decided that you can't be successful and you've gotten frustrated and lost all your motivation and give up. Um, I think that a lot of that is a mismatch between what is healthy and reasonable for people to achieve, um, you know, versus their sense of accomplishment, right? So if we start with small incremental things um, and we reward ourselves every time we sort of hit a small incremental achievement, then I think um, it's a better recipe for success. So, you know, if you set something and say, okay, I'm going to lose, you know, uh, some healthy range of weight in the range of maybe more like one and a half to two pounds a week, right? So in the month of January, I'm going to get to the gym three times a week. I'm going to shoot for losing five pounds. And if I successfully get through the month of January, I'm going to reward myself um, with the new pair of shoes that I've been, you know, waiting to buy. So setting, you know, small incremental goals, I think, is probably the number one thing I would I would tell people for motivation um, from my experience. And I think that that's not just about about weight loss. In my experience, that's really when people are looking to make substantial lifestyle lifestyle change of almost any kind. Um, I think small incremental goals tend to be more successful than grand sweeping, uh, often, you know, harder to achieve things. So the weight loss ends up being a byproduct of what you're doing for yourself that's uh, a healthier lifestyle. Yeah, that too. And and that you, you know, you don't wait to, you know, feel good about what you've done or feel good about what you've accomplished. Um you know, only when you get to the the ultimate, you know, place you're trying to go. I really appreciate you uh, doing the podcast with me, Jacqueline. Uh, this has been fun and uh, really entertaining and uh, and informative for me. And I, I hope it has been for uh, our listeners as well. Uh, any parting words here? I think the only thing I would really say for people is just, um, you know, good luck to everybody who's out there really working on getting healthier this year. Um, It's always a good goal. I think, you know, whatever you're doing, whether it's weight loss or weight maintenance or just trying to, you know, change your diet to be healthier. Those are all uh, really good goals for people to be working towards achieving now and in the future. So good luck. Okay. Thank you so much for being on with me. Thank you so much, uh, all of our listeners. And uh, stick around because we will have more podcasts, uh, not necessarily just on weight management. Uh, We just recorded a couple new ones here. So uh, we will get those out to you as well uh, real quick. Uh, Thanks again. And we'll talk to you again soon.